Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and I'm extremely excited about our guest this week. Meet Blake Hall, founder and CEO of IDEMI, the next generation digital identity network that simplifies how individuals securely prove their identity online. Widely used by government agencies, healthcare organizations, financial institutions, and retailers, IDEMI allows consumers to verify their identity and log into more than 400 leading brands without creating a new password. Blake was named CEO of the year in 2019 by One World Identity and holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. Prior to founding IDEMI, Blake was a former Army Ranger and additionally led a recon unit in Iraq in 2006 and 2007, where he was awarded two bronze stars, one for heroism and one for exceptional leadership for targeting Al-Qaeda leadership. Let's welcome Blake. And Blake, thank you for your service. Hi, Alexa. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to have you. Um, And I just want to start because I've spent so much time thinking about identity thinking about the future of identity online and what it's going to look like when your average consumer has hundreds of accounts, uh, not dozens, hundreds and growing. And I'm sure like everybody out there listening, I can barely remember my passwords. (laughs) Can you just step back and for anybody that's listening, that's a layman, just walk through what IDMI is today in your own words. Sure thing. So the way we frame the problem is that your most portable logins today are driven by Facebook and Google. And they're not trusted because they're advertising companies. The reason they're portable is they want to profile you and track your activity across the web. Your most trusted logins are typically with your bank or with your employer. And those trusted logins aren't portable. City's not about to let their customers open up accounts um, for Chase or for Wells Fargo. And so your login and your data is owned by the enterprises that you interact with. Our model's different. We are a trusted and portable identity provider and login. We're certified by the federal government and we put individuals in control of their own data so that they can verify who they are once and then move across websites without creating new passwords, without re-verifying who they are, and ultimately help them get access to the things they need to do in a much easier fashion. So I want to go back to the beginning. You, I originally launched IDMI as a brand called TroopSwap in 2010. (laughs) And like all great founders, you just put your head down and kept working and working. What was your aha moment for the earliest iteration of the company? And at what point was it clear to you that you had to pursue a much larger vision? Sure. So um, when we first started out as TroopSwap, I was interested in disrupting Craigslist. I thought that Craigslist had a trust issue and you know had been around for a long time without a lot of innovation. And the same way that Facebook entered with you know students and, and then became this massive uh, social network, thought that the military and then maybe the student communities would be a really interesting way to build a trusted community that could ultimately um, supplant you know craigslist as the dominant uh sharing kind of marketplace for goods in, in local markets as we got further in you know just realized that that model wasn't going to work because we were spending over half of our sprints on identity you know if you want to build a marketplace just for the military which is what we wanted to do we weren't actually building the application we were just trying to figure out if the users who were coming into the site were members of the military um, so there were, there were two uh, pivots that were really important. One was 
we need a distribution from USAA and military.com in order to get to critical mass in terms of a user base who could be posting and, and buying goods and things like that. And fast for those organizations was like two years. And I just wasn't willing to, you know, I was sleeping on my buddy's couch. I think I was the only homeless Harvard Business School graduate at the time. So I said, <laughs> look, like we have to pivot now to something else. And there were so many brands that wanted to, you know, give back to military and veterans and they didn't have a way to verify their identity online. So we made TroopSwap just like a gated environment for offers. This is like 2010 to 2011. And two things happened in late 2011. We, we had copied the Groupon and Living Social model for daily deals. It was really hot at the time. I had about five months of cohort data that showed that the churn was just too high. The active user unsubscribe rate, passive user unsubscribe rate. But about that same time, we had a marketing manager from Microsoft who told us, you know, we're not really interested in you as a destination website. We're really interested in being able to verify the identity of users on our own you know, platform and on our own site. And it's not just military that is a problem. It's students, it's seniors, it's employees of different organizations that we work with. And if you would build us something that we could put into our own experience, we would buy that. And so we said, well, wow, maybe, maybe what we really need to, to build here is not a website, but a, an identity utility, like PayPal's utility for payments. And maybe instead of, you know, TroopSwap, it needs to be a more inclusive brand because it sounds like there's, that the military is just one group that these organizations struggle with verifying. Uh, so in late 2012, we bought the domain name IDME from the government of Montenegro. I negotiated with Vuxan and Pedrag who wanted like a quarter of a million dollars. And I said, I'll give you $20,000, but I'll commit to rebranding the site. And that's, that's really kind of the key muscle movements of how we got to where we're at today over the first three years. So your brand, IDME, has been described as the PayPal for identity. What does that mean to you? And again, for everyone who's listening in really simple terms, what happens when I, as a consumer, click on an IDME verification button? Sure. So identity is fascinating because it has so many different forms. And and to unlock the PayPal analogy, like you can attach multiple payment credentials to your PayPal account. You can attach credit cards and debit cards and bank accounts. And then when you want to check out with PayPal, you can decide which one actually funds the purchase. IDME works in the same way, but we're attaching digital ID cards to a digital wallet, essentially, who you are. Like, are you actually Alexa? And then maybe a brand wants to give an offer to a nurse. So are, you know, is Alexa a nurse? Maybe somebody wants to recognize a teacher. So are you a teacher? And depending on what you're eligible for, you can populate those ID cards into your wallet. So as an example, Beyond Petroleum, when this COVID crisis really kind of took off, they wanted to do an offer for healthcare providers where they give 50 cents off each gallon of gasoline thought that maybe you know 50,000 users would go through in a pilot. It went viral. CNN picked it up. We credentialed a million healthcare providers. We credentialed 30% of all the nurses in the country just over the last you know 60 to 70 days. And Verizon also offers a nurse offer that's verified by IDME. So if a nurse had gone through the Beyond Petroleum experience and had verified that she's a nurse, when she gets over to Verizon, all she has to do is click on IDME, sign into her account, say, yes, it's okay for Verizon to know that I'm a nurse and, and she's done. And it takes like all of three to five seconds. 
so that's that's what we do and it's it's really amazing to be able to give back to healthcare workers and frontline workers in the context of a pandemic let's talk about some of the just other obvious benefits of IDME. <laughs> talk a little bit about how you think IDME helps everyday people with just things like passwords. Yeah, so I'll start by just talking about the work that we do with the government, right? So the government, way back in like 2011, 2012, there's a part of the Department of Commerce that's called NIST, and they're responsible for all the security and privacy standards. And they looked at how the federal government was, was administering login and they said, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense for somebody to go to like Veterans Affairs and create a login and we pay a credit bureau. And then they go over to Social Security and they create another login, we pay a credit bureau. And they go over, you know, to the IRS to get their tax transcripts and they create another login and we pay a credit bureau. Now, like at the end of that, you as a consumer have, you know, three logins. The government's paid the, the same vendor in many cases for the exact same service multiple times. And they said, well, why don't we, you know, just let the user credential once and then move their data with them and just make the login a shared service across government. It's more efficient for taxpayers and it's a much better experience because it reduces the number of passwords that you need to create and the number of times you need to verify your identity. So NIST has actually given us over $5 million in grant funding since 2012. And today we are um, an accepted login at the Social Security Administration. Um, at Veterans Affairs, at uh, various uh, Department of Treasury applications, and also at the California DMV in the city of San Diego. So that portion of our network, obviously huge organizations that we support. And, and that's how we're solving this password problem that is just not sustainable as our economy digitizes for every single application to require you to create a login, you know, enroll in two-factor authentication and re-verify who you are. We think that the fundamental problem is that the enterprises view your data and that login as theirs and not yours. And I'm really passionate, our team's really passionate about putting people back in control of their own data and giving them a login that they control. So I wanna dig into that because you had said that you've been really successful inking some large partnerships and you, you have won some of the hardest partnerships to get in the country. And I don't know what you're allowed to share publicly, but just walk through a little bit of why did you win? And maybe any of the ones that you can share to give people a sense of you officially are the partner for some of the most important institutions in the country. You know, there's, there's a few layers to this, right? The, the first one is, like General Petraeus says, it's up to leaders to get the big ideas right. And I fundamentally viewed government as the platform for trusted identity. It is the platform for our identity model you know, with, with driver's licenses. And that's because the government has a monopoly on the benefits that they offer. So they can, you know, if, if you wanna go drive, it's whatever the DMV says. And that can be frustrating at times, but there's a silver lining in that the credential that comes out of that process is trusted by everybody. So, you know, once you have your driver's license, it makes it very easy to check in at a hotel and to prove who you are. And so in a very simple way, we're just replicating a digital version of that same kind of ecosystem. Go to the government to get credentialed, and then the credential can move with you back out into the economy to help you prove who you are and, and to reduce friction. At a, at a more basic level, it's really about relationships with people. So when I think about some of the leaders in, in government, Marina Martin, who's the CTO of the VA, she's wonderful. I love her. She's just a dynamo. Every time I see her name, I smile. And she knew that you know, government had to have a unified approach to 
identity and, and she really trusted me, you know, and, and we had a track record that showed that we were worthy of trust. But that relationship was was really important because she gave us a chance and then it was up to us to prove to everyone at you know Veterans Affairs that we in fact were capable of of handling this responsibility. I think about you know folks like Roger Adams at the United States Department of the Treasury, who's just a wonderful man, really smart. His team is is awesome. And they also came to the same conclusion. And then Rajiv Mather and Rob Collins, who are at the Social Security Administration, these are folks that Americans are, are very lucky to have in positions of, of public leadership. Steve Gordon at the California DMV. And, and they said, you know what? The status quo isn't working. We have to adopt a more effective way to help people who are in the United States access digital government services more efficiently. And, and so cultivating those relationships and really understanding who, who kind of gets it and has the same vision that we do and if we talk to folks who didn't you know, kind of get it or didn't feel that same urgency, economy of time is really important. We just concentrated on the folks who saw the world like we did and, and we, we wanted to come through for them and, and to build those relationships. And to your point, you know, with Treasury, my, my running joke is that I stopped measuring the sales cycle in months and quarters and by the number of children I fathered. I'm, I mean, I'm so proud and uh, I, I remembered exactly. You said, Alexa, this deal took me having three children. That's how long. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. And also just really shows your staying power and commitment. One of the things I love most about IDME is your revenue model. How did you think about your revenue model to think about the hundreds of thousands of, of founders and entrepreneurs out there figuring out new revenue models and what works for them? How did you land on this approach? Well, there's an amazing Stratry article about Visa and how Visa, you know, formed because Visa is the most analogous business model to IDME in that we practice workflow-based ROI. So we, we look at what does it cost a business to, to administer a process today? And then what would it look like after IDME comes in and transforms it? And then how do we price things in a way where it's a clear win-win for everybody? It's a win for the business. It's a win uh, for customers. And, and so when, when we look at like a government workflow, for example, the Government Accountability Office did a study on, on the IRS, and they found that when digital authentication fails, it costs the IRS $54 to authenticate a taxpayer through the call center, and it costs the IRS $89 to authenticate the taxpayer in an IRS field office because of all the overhead associated with running the field office, right? So... And that doesn't even count your time, right? Like if you're on hold with the IRS for two hours, it's horrible. So we cost way less than $54, way, way less. And we enable everybody to prove their identity online, which is really important right now during COVID. And, and to do that in less than five minutes on average. So our value proposition in that one workflow is you know you could spend $54 and make somebody do this like miserable thing and waste hours of their life or you could pay less than $5 and they get through in 5 minutes and they're happier so it's it's a win for everybody when you have a product that's truly differentiated and has capabilities that are better than the status quo when we look over at like retailers it was the same thing we said well how would you verify somebody's military online? Like Southwest Airlines right now today operates a call center where you have to call into the help desk. Well, how much does that cost you, right? Is that a good experience to have somebody like call in to have to book their, their flight you know, through the call center versus online? 
And so what we do, and this is less than a dollar you know, per verification, is uh, we'll automate that. And, and we have tremendous efficiencies, as you noted, because if we've already credentialed you know, 90% of online military customers, which we have, and like we've credentialed a third of the nurses in the country over the last two, three months, and, and we'll have more than half of them credentialed in you know, a couple of months from now, then we provide efficiencies for the user because they already have a digital ID that helps them fly through and for the business because using IDMe is way better than having them you know, overwhelm your call center or having just a poor customer experience if you're a brand that prides itself on really taking care of your customers and guests. So, so it's, it's tremendously efficient. We start with how we help our customers, but it turns out that you know, like Visa, once you've issued the card, every time the card is swiped, it just you know, sort of prints money by making strong identity really cheap and by putting users in control of their own data, all that friction, all those new logins you're creating right now, it's tremendously wasteful. And so what we're doing is we're eliminating that waste and all that you know, password management horror. And, and it turns out it's, it's an enormous business if you get it right. How has COVID impacted your business? I know that you're growing rapidly, literally hundreds of thousands of Americans a week, which is insane and so fun. Yeah. Um, how has COVID impacted your business? And as you think about our future virtual world, and I've said this now probably a hundred times, we, we started 2020 and 2020, but we're going to end this year in 2030 in terms of just full digitalization of everything. Yeah. How has this impacted your business? Well, you know, so in late March, there was a tremendous uncertainty, you know, and, and sometimes it's hard to think it's just the beginning of July, just how much uncertainty there was in March. So we were a little bit soft for March and didn't kind of know how COVID would impact us. And then at the beginning of April, it was literally like, oh my God, we, we went straight up. We 5X'd our network volume literally within 48 hours. We started hiring you know, 25 to 50 people per week in the context of COVID when it's all remote hiring and remote training and just unbelievable operational, you know, sort of uh, challenges that we had to get through. But today we have 24 million users. We sign up 60,000 users a day. And a lot of the demand was driven by the need to support healthcare providers. We already credentialed about 10% of all the providers in America who have prescription authority, and that was to help fight the opioid crisis. It's just way too easy to forge an actual prescription pad and use somebody's DEA number. So we already had a lot of experience in healthcare, but as we saw these brands like Beyond Petroleum and Verizon who really wanted to wrap their arms around these communities, and then you know Yeti and, and Under Armour and Reebok and Adidas and you know these huge brands that said, we want to take care of our healthcare workers a lot of the, the surge in demand was due to that. We also had just gone live to help the California DMV with real ID screening. And since all the DMV's processes had moved online, you know, we're doing something like 50,000 plus documents per day that we're screening to help make sure that, that people bring the right real ID documents to their DMV visit out in California. And this all, like things we've been working on literally for years, it all surged and went live in, in the course of like two days. And so we held on for dear life, but uh, it's classic step function growth. And, um, you know, and, it, and, and I'm so proud. Like today, the platform does uh, 250 million uh, requests per month. And our average response time is 90 to 110 milliseconds. So for Tanel, our CTO, and Pradeep, our chief product officer, and that whole engineering and product team, just a massive accomplishment in terms of scaling, uh, certainly when, when 
it was really just out of the blue in terms of how, how it lifted our platform up. So you sit at the apex of the future of digital identity and physical identity and, and for everybody in the country, and if not at some point in the world. When you fast forward 10 years, you have a unique vantage point over any other entrepreneur out there about what the future could look like. I want to hear one or two just predictions that you have that's so obvious to you based on everything that you have to look at for all of the listeners that are, that are paying attention. Well, I'm an economics major, so one of the conditions of perfect markets is, is perfect information. There shouldn't be asymmetries of information between two parties to a transaction, and that's it's exactly what we do, and it's exactly what you know Visa did, and Visa was the largest IPO in American history for a long time until Alibaba uh, and a few others surpassed it, still worth $440 billion, so not doing too bad. But my vision is that we want to be the operating system for the cloud internet in that once we know who you are and your credentials, you can have seamless access to applications. So for instance, when you think about the sharing economy, if you wanna go drive you know, for DoorDash or for Lyft or for TaskRabbit, they typically all have the same onboarding experience. It's verifying who you are, verifying your driver's record, verifying your criminal background history. If we can move that data with you, then those entities become apps where once you've passed it once, if you want to you know, drive for another um, sharing economy provider, which a lot of folks do, you, all you have to do is click on it, consent, and we can not only provide the data that's needed to onboard you instantly, we can also drive acquisition for that application, which is a totally different ballgame in terms of demand generation. So this is, this is a realm that's really you know, just Apple and kind of the Google App Store and Google Play, things like that we're doing it for the cloud that is agnostic of any device. And that's only possible if you are a shared authentication service where, where those apps accept your login directly to, to, for sign-in. So that's like the ultimate goal. And I think if you've ever been to Disney, Disney is a really good local example of, of what I think the market is already moving towards, where you use your, your fingerprints and a wearable to get access to the theme park. You use Touch ID or Face ID on the Disney mobile app. You use password and maybe your phone if you're logging into Disney.com. So Disney's mapped the most efficient way to prove that you're you according to the channel. Biometrics for in-person devices for their mobile apps and for their web apps because you need a device to access the internet anyway. So what IDME is doing is saying, yeah, Disney nailed it. How do we take Disney's model and export it into an open network that applies to the entire economy? And it's just super exciting because there truly is no limit to the size of our market and to how much time we can save people. So first of all, I want to transition a little bit to you and your, your background and you, you know, truly have been an exceptional person for our country. Can you just give people a sense of how long you were in the army, what you did? And I want to then take that and apply it to entrepreneurship. But I first sure. believe people need to understand your actual background. Yeah, I'll try to stay high level. So I'm a third generation soldier. My grandfather was a war hero in World War II, command sergeant major, fought in Korea, two tours in Vietnam, 66 months of combat, more, more time in combat that I spent in the active duty uh, military. My dad was a colonel, en enlisted, then went to West Point, top 10% of his class, finished his brigade commander with like 5,000 soldiers that he led. 
And so I grew up around service. I knew I wanted to serve because I felt obligated to. I mean, everyone in my family that I looked up to served. And so I went to Vanderbilt University on an ROTC scholarship, 2000, right at the time that I was obligated to service. It's the beginning of your sophomore year, 9-11 happened. And that was a pivotal moment in my life where I realized we're going to go to war. This, you know, what became a way to pay for college and to kind of pay my, my dues and, you know, to the country in terms of public service became a very real, I'm going to lead, you know, young men and women in combat and I'm going to do my damnedest, you know, to get ready for it. And so, um, so in the military, I, I had a boss who believed in me, saw in me early, you know, I'd finished airborne uh, school, ranger school, and I had a rifle platoon for five months. And uh, Colonel Barry Huggins, he, uh, he pulled me up to be his recon platoon leader. That platoon was really struggling at the time. And he did it a year ahead of all the lieutenants who were ahead of me. So nobody thought that I was in the running. And he really just took a flyer on me and said, you know, I, I think Blake Hall is the real deal. And I didn't even feel that way about myself. But you always have those mentors and bosses who give you opportunities that just change your life. And he's, he was that for me. And then what the what the military did to us in, in Iraq was really threw us a curveball that, you know, when you're a scout or a sniper, your job is to see but not be seen. And it's to not get into firefights. It's just to be the eyes and ears. Two weeks before we went into combat, we were told, forget everything that you've learned about reconnaissance and precision engagement. You're going to act more like a SWAT team. And for the next 15 months, we're going to give you all this crazy signal intelligence equipment, and you're going to run down you know, senior level Al Qaeda leadership and some of the Al Quds, the Iranian special forces proxies that were operating in Iraq. And so that was really my introduction to entrepreneurship and to identity in that, you know, tracking a target through their, their SIM swaps and their phone ports and their bed down location and like what we call establishing a pattern of life. It's directly applicable to what we're doing now because normal people do not have the pattern of life of a terrorist. You know, you're, you're not swapping your sims and you know, burner phones and everything else. And, and as you establish that tenure, it's really powerful to establish trust. So I didn't know it at the time, but we went into a mission set we hadn't trained for at all. We were really bad at it. I think the theater success rate for these kill capture missions was like 40%. We were at 23% for the first three months. Month three, we kind of figured it out and we got up to average and we had some high profile captures. And then by the end of the tour, our success rate was over 90% on these missions where like the, the sergeants and the non-commissioned officers started casting bets. And it wasn't about whether we'd get the target or not. It was how many minutes after we got on site to when we'd, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd get the target. And that, that really is just all about a culture of learning. And I'm so proud of that team because we just got a little bit better every day. And at the end of 15 months, those little improvements that just stacked up to a unit that by some metrics, you know, we were, we were leading the theater in terms of our performance. What do you think is the single biggest thing that you took from that training that applies every day to your work as CEO outside of you just said something, which is the learning mindset. But if you had to say the single thing that makes you, that you lean on the most, what would it be? Oh my goodness. There were so many profound moments from ranger school because it really is a leadership school. And, and the first thing it does is it teaches you about yourself. So sleep deprivation, food deprivation, you really learn the limits of your own body and, and it teaches mental toughness. So I still remember uh, when I got to Florida phase, the last phase, I was, my body was just devastated. I, I had gotten bronchitis in mountain phase couldn't hardly breathe as we were, you know, climbing up the ridges. I had poison ivy that was covering my body. 
And so I, I'm going to jump into swamp phase. So I'm going to the door of the aircraft to jump out with all my gear. I'm like the radio telephone operator. So I'm just miserable. And I remember thinking, I really don't care if my chute opens or not. <laughs> like I was, I was that miserable. I was like, this is a win-win either way. And it was at that moment that I realized I would literally die before I quit. I was so invested in having a Ranger tab and, and that if, if, you're, if America was gonna trust me with 45 soldiers to lead into combat, it was my job as a leader to be credible and to do this and that you know, I would literally die before I quit. And I think that tenacity in entrepreneurship that if you know there's a problem and, and you know that there's a better way to solve it, you have to have that grit and that passion to see you through the dark times. So, you know, it's a pretty extreme analogy, but that's what it taught me. And then I was, uh, I was planning the operations order and it was just me and my squad leaders were out there and a ranger instructor came over and he said, ranger, because why are you planning alone? And, and I looked around and I was like, he's right. That like leadership isn't, you know, the sole genius who's just, you know, planning by himself and coming up with like, you know, this crazy master tactical plan. It's about leading a group of people and synthesizing the best ideas of the group. And everyone knows the leader is the arbiter and, you know, and is going to make the final call, but it needs to be an inclusive process. So that, that was really transformational for, for me. And then, and then the final lesson was uh, a ranger instructor said, you know, he goes, you're competent, but the thing I can tell is that you care about the other rangers who are with you. And he goes, honestly, as a lieutenant, because, you know, they know who the officers are going through and everything else. He goes, if your men know that you care about them, they'll follow you. And I mean, I think that that's still true for leadership, that, that the only way you can reach people and give them hard feedback is if they know that you care about them and that you're invested in their success. So just, you know, transformational experience for me, and I still carry those lessons with me uh, to this day. What are the simple hacks that you now have around sleep, food, et cetera, just that can apply to everybody that's out there listening that you really lean on? for your routine every day as you're now a CEO of hundreds of employees scaling, as you said, you know, you're hiring 25 yeah. a week, 50 a week, you're scaling rapidly. What are the basic things that just are the, the non-negotiables for you, Blake? I think routine is so important and to live a balanced life. So today is, is like my day where I'm going to spend one-on-one -on -one time with Ella, who's my oldest daughter. And then tomorrow is Mark, uh, my son's day, you know, that we spend time, but, but I, I have a pretty structured, you know, way that, that I approach my day, you know, with coffee, I'll knock out a lot of email, I'll then go into, um, I've got a, a two by two of, of urgent, non-urgent, important, not important ways that I classify my tasks is what uh, President Eisenhower, General Eisenhower used to, to kind of order his activities. And I always want to make sure I'm focused on the things that are both urgent and important and not focused on the things that are urgent and not important. So so that routine and structure to make sure I'm taking care of my family and being a good dad is really important over the long term to, to being productive and to having a happy life, I think. And then I'd say, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, the most important trait, I think, is swallowing your emotions as a leader and biting your tongue. Both when, when your team lets you down, I have never regretted biting my tongue and, and not saying something when I'm frustrated or upset. Like never, I can't think of a single time when, when it was like, oh, I, I definitely needed to respond in that moment. Avoid email like the plague for anything contentious. It's just always toxic. 
yeah, I think I think the, those lessons learned are are really important because those things will create conflict and will create weird stuff within your culture that it takes a lot of time to repair. And it, and it's also true with like suppliers and customers too. Like they'll say stuff and you just have to like grin and bear it and just be like, okay, like this isn't fair. It's not just, but it's about the company. It's not about my ego or my feelings. And I'm just going to take the hit and, and then, you know, be dispassionate and, and able to move on that skill set and that emotional regulation is just so key. And I, and I try to get better at that every day. I want to quickly just ask to date for ID me, what's the biggest pinch me moment? The one where you're like, Holy smokes, I can't believe that just happened. That really was a moment of like, Holy moly, this is awesome. What was it? I think it's, it's gotta be the federal agencies, you know, like when, when a Veterans Affairs is the first federal agency trusted us to power their authentication. Like, holy cow, like we are the authentication layer for one of the largest departments of the United States government, right? And and now over at Social Security and Treasury and IRS, it's just a massive responsibility. And and in some ways, it's just a very simple, like we're, we're, we were making what the Department of Commerce and the NIST folks wanted to have happen, that your, your login and your data could move with you. And it's one thing to get that conceptually, but when you actually see that, holy cow, we're, we're doing this, we're operationally powering a huge chunk of authentication for the United States of America, it's, it's just surreal. So there, there's been some times where I'll take a walk or I'll go for a run, and, and that's when it really kind of just sinks in and I still don't know quite what to make of it, but I know it's an enormous accomplishment. And, I, and the thing I take away from it most is don't screw this up. Like this is an enormous, an enormous trust that, that these you know, agencies have put in you and, and you've got to come through for, for the USA. What's your favorite interview question? You're, you've clearly gotten into people's heads and psyches and you've had to do superhuman, really intense things. What is the question you ask somebody if you really want to look into their soul and determine whether or not you want them on the field with you? Oh, well, there, so there's, there's two things. Cause I know your audience is entrepreneurs. So my favorite question is what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are making a pitch? And I'd say always end with the ask. I've been in so many pitches that like they pitch it and like, I'm excited for them. And, and then they don't ask you for, for what they want, you know, or they haven't put the thoughtfulness into being like, why are we here? You know, what do you, what do you want me to do? Do you want, if you want me to be excited about your business, I'm excited about your business. But if you're raising money, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What are those terms? Be thoughtful and deliberate about that. So when you pitch somebody, know what your angle is. For me personally, I, I think the thing that's most destructive to, to cultures and startups are, are folks who have big egos and can't learn because a startup is all about learning. And my favorite question is, is I ask about a project that went wrong in somebody's past. And what I'm doing is I don't really care about the specifics of what they're telling me. I'm looking for how they assign blame. Because if they say, you know, oh, my boss was horrible and my teammates were terrible, you're about to be their boss and their teammates. And right. And so the, as, as an FBI profiler would tell you, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. You're going to be that person. But if somebody says, you know, maybe the environment wasn't the best and like there were mistakes made all around, but this is my piece of the pie. And if I could go back and do it again, I think I needed to be better at these things. And if I'd done these things, the project had a better chance of success. That's the person I want on my team because they, they have the, the, the lack of ego and the selflessness and the security to say, I can grow and get better from this experience and I'm not going to pin it on somebody else. 
And if you can get that team where when something goes wrong, everybody's raising their hand to say, I messed this up. I messed this up. I messed this up. It's awesome. It is awesome. And you need it. You need it when you're still trying to figure stuff out because if it's finger pointing and like you screwed this up or whatever, you're like, never going to get there. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last thing I want to end on, if you are going to pay it forward to any other product, startup, something that you have seen recently that you are very excited about that is not ID Meet, what is it? Well, I was lucky to have a lot of entrepreneurs in my section at Harvard Business School. And one of them is my favorite in the world, uh, Amy Jane. And she runs a company called Bobble Bar. And she found a gap in the market for jewelry that was both really nice and affordable. And I'm just so proud of her. She's also 10 years into her journey. She's done an awesome job. She, she got it way faster than I did. I, I'm, a, I'm a comeback story. She, she kind of nailed it from you know, the first inning or so. For, for the listeners out there who are looking for a gift for their significant other or for the women who are listening, uh, Bobble Bar is, uh, is a great site. You should go check it out. I'm only smiling because Amy is uh, one of my absolute best friends and spoke in my, my wedding and I'm just, you're adorable. And that was so sweet and so sincere. If you want to learn more about ID.me, check it out at ID.me and join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel and Blake, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like this was such a gift to all of our listeners. Thanks, Alexa. 